Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this week, Marianne will be speaking with Peter Singer, who has just released a completely reworked edition of the book that started so many people thinking about animals seriously, Animal Liberation. The new book is called, appropriately, Animal Liberation Now. And I know that you really loved interviewing Peter, who, by the way, I am not related to. Yeah, no, this was a lot of fun. And the interview went really long and we had a really great conversation. I don't agree with him about everything, but I agree with him about really a lot of things. And and he's so smart and he's so thoughtful. So, yeah, no, we did a little... Uh, a stroll down memory lane, or he didn't, but I did, of this time I remembered uh, seeing him talk at a very small, under uh, under-attended <laughs> event in New York City, like a gazillion years ago. He wrote this book 50 years ago. Does that give you the willies? He wrote it 50 years ago? 50 years ago, yeah. I'm... I guess that's true. I was like, no, wait, this is so funny because I was like, no, because I'm only 43 and he only wrote it a little bit before I was born. <laughs> that's, oh, my God. Yeah. That's very funny. Well, and by the, I know he's on a tour right now, which he's going to chat with you about a little bit, too. But if people want to see the tour dates, go to thinkinc.org.au and Inc is I-N-C. So it's thinkinc.org.au for more info. And and I think he chats about it as well. So, you know, I, I, I imagine those speaking engagements are, are going to be a lot of fun. I think you mentioned this on bonus. So uh, it wouldn't be available for everybody to hear, but that Wayne Shung is going to be jo- joining him on the stage. I think that's in San Francisco. So that should be interesting. Yes. Super interesting. Very cool. Well, before we get to that, which I know probably a lot of people who are tuning in right now are like, okay, enough. Talk to him. But you have to listen to us first. I'm sorry. Although I'm not sorry because we're brilliant. They don't really have to. They could actually fast forward. Oh, that's true. Now you're putting ideas in your head. (laughs) You know what? Anybody listening to this who's like under 33 has no idea (laughs) the reference that you just made. It's so funny. So I just got back from a trip and I'm actually leaving again for another trip soon. There's just, it just so happens there's a couple of trips happening very close together. But the one that I just got back to was Telluride, Colorado, which is absolutely gorgeous and so friggin' hard to get to. Oh my God. Like I wound up bookending the trip with Denver just like for to sleep at the airport hotel, which, you know, thank you, credit card airline miles for covering that part of the trip because otherwise it just would have been a ridiculous trip. Like stop whining. You went like you went to like this really like crazy out of the way place and you're complaining that it took a long time to get there. What do you want? I'm Jewish. We just do that. <laughs> don't don't blame this on your people. Oh, let me just tell you, when I was in Denver, I did get to have dinner with friends. It was kind of a surprise, like last minute thing. I hardly had any time. So I basically got there, had dinner, went back to the hotel and left to go to Telluride. But uh, so we went to this amazing restaurant in Denver called Somebody People. And my friend who I was with told me that the reason it's called Somebody People is because the folks who started it felt like vegans aren't treated like somebody at restaurants. They're treated like nobody. There's hardly... <laughs> That's really And cute. so they called it Somebody People because it's for the Somebody People. I loved this place. They it, The food was amazing. You would love this. So I went on Sunday and there's something called like Sunday Supper or something around that 
kind of thing. And basically the on Sundays, the chef takes all the ingredients they have left that they didn't use that week and creates these amazing oh, cool. prefix really meals. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And and then I also I I didn't have to make any decisions, which you also would have liked because sometimes you have no idea what to order. Oh, I, vegan restaurants confuse me. Like there's yeah. all that choice. Yeah. Well, that would be totally gross. Well, anything would be gross in a non-vegan restaurant. But even if you're a meat eater, you just don't wouldn't want like right. any old ingredient that was used this week. <laughs> like like yeah. who knows what it might be. Right. But right. So a vegan restaurant and it, who knows how bad it would have gone by then. But uh, a vegan restaurant, that's perfect. And they add in 20 percent. So if you want to leave a tip on top of that, you can. But it's baked in so that they're giving the the servers and bartenders and staff a fair wage. Mm-hmm. And it I was hate just... Tipping. God, I hate tipping. You, is, well, let, be clear on what you mean, because you tip well. You just mean you hate the process. I never know how much I'm supposed to tip. I always feel like it's a tax on generosity. And I like to think I'm generous. So I pay the tax because, you know, people are working hard and they're not getting paid enough because you're expected to pay their salary in addition to paying for your meal. But, you know, the non-generous people probably don't pay their tax very well and it's all random and I never know how much and I always feel awkward and I hate tipping. Okay, well, you should just move to Denver and only eat at this restaurant. That sounds fine. So then I was in Telluride and just not to get into all of the reasons why I was there, but let's just say I'm part of this impact. uh, It's called like an impact salon. Otherwise, another way of thinking of it would be like a mastermind. It's basically like me and three other people who are working on some of our executive skills, but it definitely spills over to personal things like that. So we're shedding belief systems that no longer work for us and inhabiting the tomorrow version of us. All right. uh, Like enough. I'm getting confused. Really? Okay. And people are wondering there, and do you ski as well? I, no. Uh, what are you doing in Telluride? <laughs> oh, it was just in Telluride because that's where it was. But so, it, and Telluride was gorgeous, like just so many gorgeous mountains. It looked like Transylvania when you sent me pictures. Yeah, I could see why. The elevation is 9,000 feet. So I was definitely feeling that like I was out of breath much more quickly. And you were mentioning that they sell oxygen in the uh, in the stores. Everywhere, yeah. I had my little oxygen with me everywhere I went. It's almost like an inhaler kind of thing, which I also had with me was my inhaler. So it was just wonderful experience. The whole thing was vegan because the my coach who was running it is vegan. And it was like next level amazing vegan food, like just so divine. How would you apply what you learned to animal activism? First of all, I didn't know you were going to ask that. So I'm just t- thinking off the top of my head right now. But I think that the idea of us setting ourselves up to be in it for the long run is more important than I think I could even describe. And that might mean something different to different people. But for me, it means that, you know, there are just some isms that I have to shed. And like one of them is thinking I could take everything on and it, and and I sometimes sort of do. I'm like, oh, I have an hour between, you know, 2 and 3 a.m. I could yeah, take that's that day. You. Yeah. And, you know, so like I've been working hard on saying no to things for a while now, but framing it in the way that we'll show up as better activists and advocates if we're able to 
narrow what we're doing as opposed to widen it. It doesn't mean we're becoming complacent or... I don't think anybody else thinks it means you're becoming complacent. I think probably everybody listening is saying, yeah, yeah, that really makes sense. Like you can't do everything. It's better to do, better to pick and choose and then do those things well. Only you would say it's complacent to ever turn down anything. Well, I have I have a problem with like I just have like some kind of mental block sometimes uh, around the idea of that I'm closing a door. Like I just really hate the idea that I am and I think that's just neurotic. And so I did a lot of work around that and I did work on like apologizing for taking up space kind of thing, which is also something that, you know, the animals don't have time for us to do. That's a girl thing. I know. Definitely. Not that everybody, I'm not saying every, I'm not accusing everybody of doing that, but that is something that women are brought up to do. Right, right. So I was sort of uh, focusing on the idea that like, and this is going to be way too woo for you, Marianne, but the idea that like, I am space. Like if I start to think of myself as space, then I, uh I can incorporate it more into my day to day. And also that I am. I am space. Like, what does that mean? I just, so you weren't there for a reason. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, and then also just some of my professional goals as well, specifically around creating community and helping people to foster safe spaces and and also making media that that encourages people to think about the world differently and their role in the world differently. Those are the things I was working on. So it was a very meaningful, intimate weekend. And right when it was over, and I know you know this story because I called you and told talked your ear off while I was hiking in an area that you then made me turn around because it said that it was an avalanche zone, even though there was no snow. I did not make you turn out, turn you around. Did. You said you were, you were very, very cooperative in the idea that you should turn around. But it wasn't just the, the avalanche, which admittedly is not that big a problem in May probably, but 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 bears. I, I was scared of bears. It was it's just so not you. Hiking alone in this in this wilderness area. I wound up taking a really long walk and then stopping and getting like a vegan hash, which was delicious. That is so much more you. Yeah. So anyhow, so when we're done, it was just beautiful. The food was next level. We were all really getting along so well. And then some someone was talking about where to get dinner. And this one guy goes, I don't care. I just need meat. And, the, and you know, I, let's just pause for a second. I, I have people like that in my life. My brother is sort of like that. I wouldn't have said anything. But then, and I know this is a tale that every single person listening to this agree, is going to be nodding their head. This guy then looks at me and goes, I, I'm sorry to say that. You know, like the apology, right? And I yeah. think once they apologize to us, we have a friggin' right to say something. You have a right to say something anyway. And maybe once they apologize, you have even sort of an obligation to engage. So I said, don't apologize to me, apologize to the animals. And it just like came out. I probably normally would have just said, don't apologize to me and stopped there. I, I'm totally like I've said it a million times because you've told me this story a million times, but that was a perfectly fine thing to say. So then he goes, well, hopefully they're treated well. And I go, ah, that's bullshit. It's not possible. Also, a perfectly fine thing to say. And also an abrasive thing for me specifically to say. I don't generally say things like that in that tone. But I was honestly also feeling very offended on behalf of the hosts who had made this amazing food. Well, I think it's fine to feel offended on behalf of the animals. Yes, and the animals, of course, obviously. 
I, and then when I was talking to you and taking my long walk that wasn't the hike in the avalanche area, I, I suddenly, I told you, I felt like I was in the twilight zone because we're talking about this. And I, I was kind of crying, because, not because of this guy, but because every now and then it gets to me like really badly the way people treat animals. Yeah. And I, then I look up and there's an apothecary and a medicine store thing. And there's a friggin', you know, ram's head yeah. in. And I was like, what the Western design yeah. frequently involves a lot of uh, yeah dead animal things. It was just a sad moment. Can I clarify something too? I'm not like in my pushback, I'm not saying that it was great activism to be rude. What I'm saying is that I don't think anything you did was rude. I think you were just responding. Yeah, I I have been thinking about it a lot because I don't really regret it. I think the only thing I might have done differently is just said, no, you know what? I don't know. Maybe I was fine. We can't always stop to think what is the best possible way no. to silence you know. equals death. Right, right. You said something and it was totally fine. Particularly a guy who's willing to say that at that moment doesn't sound like that sensitive a character. I doubt that he even thought you were being rude in any way whatsoever. Anyway, enough of this story. Enough of this story. Who cares about this guy? <laughs> well, I just want to say that the trip was really like revelatory and ama amazing. I I'm very grateful to have done it. I haven't traveled like that in a very long time. I felt a little weird about flying, but you know, I should feel weird about that. And my next trip that I'm taking, which is next week, Moore and I are going on a two week trip, but all with our electric car. So we've, uh, we've mapped out like the charging stations. And I feel like a pioneer because the, the nation is not quite set up for... I don't want it to be that hard. No, I don't either. I don't either. But maybe we'll like, you know, normalize it a little bit. Well, you two are fanatic planners. So the yeah. fact that you had to plan it out this carefully doesn't mean that everybody would. You can probably wing it. I think that next week at this time, am I right? Will I have will I have already left? I don't know. And no. and they're not going to hear this at the same time that we're saying it. So the whole thing is just confusing. So uh Okay, no, no, no. I I'm not I will not have left yet. Okay. No, the reason I'm telling you that is because uh I I have to do tots which is top of the show, which is what we're recording now. I have to do it from the road. That's why I was wondering. But Oh, that'll be fun. Yeah, so we're taking we're going to like we're driving to Kansas and back cuz my niece is being bought mitzvah and I'm very excited about it. All right. So let's talk about real things now. Let's talk about real, real activism, real effective activism, because there's a, a story in the news this week that is about some extremely effective orca activists. Have you heard this story? Well, yes, it's, I have. It's from it's from Europe. And the title of the story, which is from Live Science, which sounds like a, you know, this sounds like legit. It's not, it's not dead science. Or, it's live. Orcas have sunk three boats in Europe and appear to be teaching others to do the same. And that's exactly what the story is there. It starts by talking about there. It probably started with with an orca who had been maybe injured, like deeply traumatized, probably by some horrible thing happening to them. And then these other orcas were seen attacking this yacht in the Strait of Gibraltar off Spain, piercing the rudder. And there, there were two smaller and one larger one, according to the, to the skipper. The smaller orcas were kind of imitating the larger one. And the implication was, is that the mother was teaching the children to attack ships. Then two days earlier, a pot of six orcas had attacked another sailboat in the same area. Then 
There have been other interactions that have been traced, but these were so close. And there was such an implication that some orcas were teaching other orcas how to do this, particularly young ones. All right. It was a, a female orca. They gave her a name, White Gladys, that she suffered a, quote, critical moment of agony because of a, a collision with a boat during illegal fishing. And it seems to, they say it's flipped a behavioral switch. Uh, th- like, I would love to see the animals of the world taking a hint from this and going after us. <laughs> what can I say? The birds. It reminds me of the birds, uh, the Alfred Hitchcock movie, which we reviewed many years ago. But still, it's just an incredibly chilling, but, you know, kind of inspiring movie about the animals fighting back. That movie started out like in a pet store with all of these caged birds. You know, the implications were very, very strong. If you haven't seen that movie, and it's an amazing, amazing animal rights movie. You know what I was thinking of before when I was chopping up peppers to put in my tofu scramble and I, my knives aren't sharp and I was like, ah, this is so hard to cut these. I remembered that we reviewed like a vegetable cut chopper like a billion years ago. Oh, I think I still have that vegetable chopper. Well, you got to get that out. Let me. Cause... It's in my closet somewhere. My kitchen is a disaster. I ha- That's what I'm going to do now that I'm not teaching anymore and I have more free time, which you know, it never seems to be today that I have more free time, but theoretically, I have more free time. I'm going to organize my kitchen. There's an important message to all of our listeners. <laughs> yes. So we used to review things at the end of every podcast, and sometimes we wouldn't plan for it. We would just look around the house and talk about <laughs> what, what, can we, <laughs> what can we review. But I was really... I was missing that chopper thing. I really yeah. wanted it before when I was making yeah. my tofu. It was great. So, I, have to, I have to go look. Okay, well, don't do it right now. So there's also this article that's getting a lot of buzz in Grist. And the title of it is, This L.A. Teen is Suing Her School District and the USDA to Promote Non-Dairy Milk. So this was something that you showed me. And it's just, it's another, I I like this story a lot. Yeah, actually, I first saw this story because it it appeared on our uh, Mighty Networks site, which anybody can join. Uh, I'll leave it up to you to tell people how because I always get those things wrong. But somebody had posted this story and asked, did I think that um, this lawsuit had potential? Because, you know, it's hard to know. There are a lot of lawsuits are filed. But I think it has serious potential. And now it's getting all sorts of press. And um, this is about this this young woman, Marielle Williamson, and she's a senior at Eagle Rock High School in L.A. She was allowed to um, set up this table outside uh, her school's college center. I'm not sure what that means. It was promoting plant-based milk. She had some free cartons of Oatly. She was there to to tell people about all of the, you know, environmental ethical benefits of plant-based milk. And this was this was permitted. It's not like she was sneaking in there and doing this. But the administration, when she started to plan a similar event, came back to her and said that there were federal regulations against, you're not going to believe this, school-sanctioned activities that could, quote, directly or indirectly restrict the sale or marketing of cow's milk. Like, like, <laughs> and they told her she would have to, like, have, have materials that were promoting cow's milk along with her materials that were condemning cow's milk. And she she said, no, Uh, she said, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) It felt wrong to quote her. And now she's suing them. First Amendment. The school is the government. The government can't tell you what you can say. Does the milk industry actually own this country? And we we don't realize they actually own all. They own the government. Like, how do they get away with this stuff? Forcing children. they, They force kids to to drink milk. 
I've seen this posted a couple of places, and it's probably in this article too, the fact that if kids want an alternative to dairy milk, which they're given at school, they have to get a doctor's note that they're lactose intolerant, which, you know, probably 65% of them are, but they have to get a doctor's note if they don't want to drink milk. Do you remember we went to Disney World? Like, I think it was, I feel like it was 2000, maybe 10 or earlier. And we went around looking for the one vegan ice cream that they had in all of Disney World at the time. And we finally found it and they had to get a manager. That's right. We had to say that we were allergic to, like they wouldn't sell it to us unless we physically said, I'm allergic to uh, dairy. And so I said, I'm allergic to cruelty. (laughs) And like the 17 year old guy was like, I had totally forgotten that. Yeah. I don't know why that happened because Disney World is not the government. So presumably this didn't apply to Disney World, but I guess they they took a message from that. I I assume that's no longer the case. Yeah, I doubt Uh, it. People who have been to Disney World recently, I would love to know what the vegan options were. There's a lot. There's like whole blogs written about the the vegan option. At the time, there was like hardly anything. I mean, it really has changed. Yeah, we had to really work at it. And everybody was walking around with a, with this poor, some poor turkey's legs in, stuffed in their mouth. And we went and I, it was right after Thanksgiving. And I went up to them with my flip cam, which preceded uh, the phones that can record. And I said, excuse me, do you know where the turkey who's been pardoned is kept? Excuse me, do you know where the turkey who's been pardoned is kept? And we made a little video about it. Because, uh, you know, the president, quote unquote, pardons a turkey and it's the turkey supposed to go to Disney World. And so I just kept filming these people eating a turkey's leg, being confused and looking around. It doesn't seem that long ago. It really doesn't. I remember it so vividly. Is that because I'm getting old? No, it really wasn't all that long ago. Things change so fast these days. And that brings us to our interview today, because I cannot believe that that Peter's book came out. I know. We started with this fact. Like We're, we're so amazed about how old we are. <laughs> it's, it's, it is funny that I was that I genuinely was about to pause the, the podcast and have Eric edit or Eric's our editor. have him edit it out <laughs> because I was like, Marianne, it couldn't have he couldn't have written it 50 years ago because and then I was like, because I'm 43. <laughs> That was confusing. All right. So Peter Singer needs no introduction. And if I attempted an appropriately detailed one, it would go on and on and on. He has authored or co-authored over 50 books, including The Life You Can Save and The Most Good You Can Do, and of course, Animal Liberation, which changed the way many, many people think about animals. He is also the Ira W. DeCamp Professor of Bioethics in the University Center for Human Values at Princeton University and the co-founder of Animals Australia and the founder of The Life You Can Save. He will be joining Marianne right after this. Our friends at fakemeats.com have been a one-stop shop for meat substitutes, egg replacers, and more since 2011. Many of us, including me, definitely me, have been searching for vegan meat with a shorter ingredient list and fakemeats.com has come through with the release of their very own Plant Basics product line. Plant Basics brings us back to basics with their hearty plant proteins and plant-based seasonings. The proteins come in four varieties all unflavored, gluten-free, non-GMO, kosher, and low-sodium, and made with, get this, 
only one ingredient. You heard me, one, one ingredient. The classic ground strips and chunks are each made from soy, while the crumbles are created with pea protein, which is basically magic. They come unflavored, so season them any way you like. If you're looking to create a meaty flavor, the plant-based seasonings come in three varieties, just like chicken, just like beef, and just like ham. All plant-based, all gluten-free, non-GMO, kosher, and made using simple ingredients. Want to whip up a rich broth for a soup? Try just like ham. Or grab some classic ground and sprinkle on some just like beef and bam, it's taco night. I have to say, I particularly love the just like beef because I have been so into tacos recently. I don't know if it's because I'm missing Southern California, but man, the tacos are something I crave. And once this arrived in the mail, I was like, done. Itch scratched. I love it. Anyway, you don't have to take my word for it because fakemeats.com is giving our listeners 15% off Plant Basics products through July 2023 using coupon code HENHOUSE23. That's HENHOUSE23, all caps, H-E-N-H-O-U-S-E-2-3 to get 15% off the Plant Basics line only on fakemeats.com. And you guys, I love it. And I know you will too. Welcome back to our hen house, Peter. Thank you. It's great to be back with you. It is great to see you. And it's been a while. You know, as, as your book points out, a lot has happened and then a lot has not happened <laughs> since last we spoke. So the book, I'm very excited about it. I just had a chance to read most of it, and it is your usual masterful job of communication. Why now? You didn't just issue a new revision as you did in the 90s, but you really kind of redid the book. I mean, it's it's the same, but it's quite different, and you're reissuing it with a somewhat new title. I'm just kind of wondering, was this timing just personal because of where your life is, or do you feel that we might be at an inflection moment that that this book could be really useful right now? Yes, I think it's a combination of the two. Certainly, you know, if I am going to do a full revision like this, um, I did think two or three years ago, I better do it now rather than later. But secondly, I think that with the upsurge in uh, vegan eating and vegan products, this is maybe a moment to talk about these issues again, to try to provide more energy into the animal movement. I'm not saying there isn't energy there now. There is, but um, to, to boost it even further, to try to reach a wider audience and uh, bring in new people. So uh, that's the reason. And, and as for putting the now on the title, that was intended to get people to see that it isn't just another edition, that it really is uh, a largely new book, even if the fundamental ethical framework hasn't been changed. Uh, a lot of the descriptions about what's happening to animals, plus a lot of material about climate change, uh, and then, of course, material about the progress that has been made and that still needs to be made, uh, all of that is new. Like all of a sudden, there's this incredible new resource that really brings together so many of the facts and the thought processes that we all have to know about in order to do this work. As you pointed out, the central premise of equality uh, or you alluded to of the book remains the same. I don't feel like like your rationales have changed really a lot. 
equal consideration of interests is is the term that you use that is the centerpiece of of how you think about these issues. So can we just start by you laying out for us what that means and how it doesn't mean what the titles of the articles always say, like animals are equal to humans, says Peter Singer. It's a little more subtle than that. Exactly. They uh Yes, the headlines are, are not very good. There was another example in the Observer just over the weekend uh, that seemed to say, you know, that I think uh, animals and humans are exactly the same equally in some way. And I've already had some emails telling me that's not the case. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> so, oh, so, I never thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> right. So the principle is one of, as you say, equal consideration of interests and to be even more precise, equal consideration of similar interests. One way of putting this is to say, if a being is feeling pain, then what matters is how much pain they're feeling, not what species the being is. Sometimes, of course, what species the being is will matter to the way in which the the being is feeling pain or, or suffering. Some beings obviously are social animals and will suffer from being alone for a long time. Others are not, and they won't suffer from that. So you've got to consider what the interests are in each case. But the fact that you're a member of the species Homo sapien doesn't mean that your pain is morally more important than if you're a member of any other species that can feel a similar quantity of pain. And for that matter, the fact that uh, you're a dog doesn't mean that your pain is more important than that of a pig, which of course many people assume that it is. Yeah. And even if they don't assume that it is, they certainly act as if it is. Another thing that we should lay out right at the beginning, which also I don't think has changed, is your definition of sentience. Because people use this word to mean a lot of different things, and it's so important to understanding what you're saying here. So can you just talk a little bit about what sentience means? Right. When I talk about a sentient being, I mean a being who is the subject of experiences. So there's something that it is like to be that being in the way that it's something that it's like to be you and me and everybody else who's listening to this, but it's not something that it's like to be a rock. If I want to smash up a rock into small pieces of it, there's no experiences the rock is having. So uh, that's what I mean. It's it's uh, another way of putting it would be to say it's a conscious being and this, it has experiences. It's, there's a subject of those experiences. For everyday people, this might be different for scientists or philosophers, but for everyday people, is there a substantial difference between consciousness and, and sentience? With that, you don't have to get into a lot of detail here. I'm just wondering whether whether it's okay to use those words somewhat interchangeably, because I find that people, maybe they don't understand consciousness, but they get it quicker than they get the word sentience. Probably they do, although sometimes consciousness is confused with self-consciousness or self-awareness, that is, a sense that... I am the same being who went to sleep last night, or for that matter, who did certain things when I was a child, and I expect to be the same being who will do other things as I get older. So that's self-consciousness or sometimes self-awareness, and that can be confused with ordinary consciousness, which, as you say, is just like what I was talking about with regard to to sentience, uh, and maybe is a more popular kind of easily understood word. And none of these ideas, I'm sure almost everybody uh, listening has read some of your work, and none of these ideas seem very new. But the ideas may not have changed, but the world has changed a lot, as you mentioned in the beginning. So kind of in general terms, and we can get into detail later, what has changed factually for animals, both for good and ill, since you first wrote this book? 
Okay. So for good, in much of the world, and particularly in, in Western countries, but in a lot of other countries as well, there is more awareness of the idea that animals are morally significant beings, that there is a serious moral question about the way we're treating animals. And I don't think that was the case at all 50 years ago. I welcome that greater awareness. And of course, that's boosted by the animal movement that exists now, which did not exist 50 years ago. So 50 years ago, there was an anti-cruelty movement with the SPCAs or the Royal SPCAs in, in British countries. And they were really concerned with preventing cruelty to animals, but particularly to cats and dogs and horses, not really significantly to farmed animals. And they mostly left animals used in uh, research to a couple of the anti-vivisection societies, which also, at least in their uh, propaganda, seemed to focus on experiments on dogs and cats much more than experiments on rats and mice, although you know, there's 99% of the animals used in experiments are probably rats and mice. Now, now there's quite a lot of fish used, but uh, anyway, not, not dogs and cats. That growth in awareness is really important, and it has led to some reforms in some countries, uh, so that's another positive. On the negative is the fact that, in particular, factory farming has grown, and it's grown globally. It's grown particularly in countries like China, which were too poor 50 years ago for many people to be able to afford much meat, and now they're certainly less poor, and they've gone in for factory farming in a really gigantic way in order to provide meat and animal products for people who want them. And also I should mention that the factory farming of fish, uh, so-called aquaculture, has also expanded enormously and is now, you know, accounts for actually the majority of vertebrate animals raised and, and farmed for food. I'm not talking about fish, wild-caught fish. I'm just talking about the farmed fish. It now outnumbers all of the other animals, all of the other vertebrate animals raised for food put together. So that's a very big and really tragic change in what's happened over that period. It's really kind of extraordinary, isn't it? Like <laughs> these two things happening at the same time, people becoming so much more aware and so much more accepting of these ideas. And at the same time, everything getting so much worse for animals. I'm not sure I have a question there. <laughs> just It's just extraordinary that the way the world works sometimes. Yeah, it's kind of a paradox. I agree. Uh, and I suppose the explanation is that the People who are consuming more meat, particularly, as I say, those in China and other countries, may not actually have changed their awareness very much. Or, you know, some of them have, and that would be true in Western countries as well. Uh, quite a large number of people have changed their awareness, but not everybody has. And then, and then the second factor is that a change of awareness doesn't necessarily mean that it affects what you buy at the supermarket and what you eat. And, and that's yeah, clearly a real problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is kind of the big problem. So you go into deep into these facts, and and some of them are so much worse than things used to be. Most of the book is not tough to read, and if people are hesitant because of that, they shouldn't be, because there's a lot of ideas here, and uh, it's not just description of dreadful things happening to animals. But I'm kind of wondering, how hard was it to write? Did you have to immerse yourself in a lot of horror in order to write this? Yeah, I did, actually. Um, and it really brought me back to what it was like when I wrote the first edition. I mean, in one way, technically, it was different because when I wrote the first edition, I was I was in New York City and I spent 
weeks, months in the New York Public Library looking at journals, agriculture journals, for example, to get up to date with factory farming and also accounts of experiments, whereas now it's all online. But, but the sense of reading all of this stuff, on the one hand, it was immensely depressing because you know it's all going on and uh, it's just horrible to read about. And on the other hand, in a sense, it, it made me angry and it also made me want to do whatever I can to try to make more people aware of it in the hope that if more people become aware of it, it will stop or at least be significantly reduced or improved. So it, it was sort of driving me on while I was depressed and sometimes finding it hard to sleep at the end of the day. It, it was driving me on. That's a perfect summary of, of a lot of people's lives as animal activists. It ruins your life and then, and then it drives you constantly to do something about it. Can we talk a little bit about your writing style and maybe the process that you use? Because you describe yourself as looking to sources objectively, and I totally think that you succeed in it. I know I'm sure that's a very important value for you. But your writing does capture a real sensitivity to the suffering of animals. It's not absent. It's not just a, a recitation of, of facts. Do you have to work at finding that balance or is that just kind of where you live and that, that it just emerges like that? My writing that's gone on for quite a long time and it's become uh, a second nature. So I don't have to very consciously think about that balance now. I did when I started writing and started writing about animals. It was much more conscious then. I'm pleased by what you say about it. I'm glad that you think it, it still is like that, both both objective but sensitive to the suffering of animals. Uh, that's that's certainly what I'm I'm trying to do. So I'm pleased if I succeeded. The other thing that that you succeed at, which uh, philosophers don't, academics in general don't, as as a general rule, is writing for a mainstream audience. Is it hard to go back and forth between the two audiences? Do you constantly have to check yourself as to whether you're using jargon that you shouldn't be doing? Or, you know, I'm not the stupidest person in the world. I, I read like philosophical work and I don't know what they're talking about. I mean, I just have no idea what anybody's talking about. And I'm sure you can do that. Like, I have no doubts about your abilities. How do you go back and forth between audiences? So even when I write for other philosophers in academic journals, I try to avoid jargon because I think it's it's pointless really and and it does exclude people even if you're writing in uh, philosophical journals it's quite likely that undergraduates might be, want to read this and they may not know the jargon and i think i've i've become perfectly comfortable in not doing that i think for some academics it's a way of showing that you have a kind of expertise that other people lack and it it's a security barrier that they won't be criticized by other people <laughs> Because they won't know what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, that's uh, yeah, that's that sounds crazy, but I, I'm I'm not joking. I think that that is a factor with some academics, and uh, I suppose I feel secure enough. Well, certainly I do now, but um, you know, even going back quite a few years, I felt secure enough in my position not to need to hide behind that screen of of jargon or obscurity. You focus on minimizing suffering. You basically avoid, well, not totally avoid, but you do not emphasize the question of whether or not killing an animal is necessarily wrong. And I don't want to go down that that avenue particularly. Okay. Yeah, I mean, even in the book, it's not what you focus on. But I, I just wonder, is this a question that even matters in the real world or does it become entirely hypothetical? 
even the most humane farming that I'm familiar with is hardly without suffering. Is this a real question in in the way animal agriculture really works? Are there really conscientious omnivores? Uh, I think there are, um, yes. Uh, so some of them may raise their own animals. There's a British conservative philosopher, he, he died a few years ago, called Roger Scruton, who lived outside London and had some land, and he raised animals on it, including pigs. And I believe he actually named one of his pigs Singer and then killed and ate it. But I, but I believe that, that yeah, ch- charming. But but still, I'm prepared to believe, you know, I've met him and I, I think he was at least, you know, a, a person with some concern about animals because he certainly was opposed to factory farming and wrote quite strongly against it. I'm prepared to believe that he looked after the animals well. Um, they were killed on farm. And I'm prepared to believe that they had good lives on the whole. That's just one example. I think I know people who have uh, hens, for example, uh, egg, uh, they use their eggs from them. I think they can give them good lives too. Maybe some commercial free-range producers also, their hens have good lives, even though they're, they're killed once their rate of lay starts to drop off. And of course, the males of the laying breeds will be killed immediately. I think it's possible for, for free-range hens to have good lives. I guess I don't agree, but I think we can both agree that the vast majority of them, whether they're called humanely raised or not, have pretty horrible lives. This isn't an easy thing to rely on. It would have to be an extremely small number of people who were able to be confident that animals were raised humanely. Would you say that's true? Oh, I certainly agree that the yeah, the overwhelming majority, you know, whether it's 99% or, or 99.8%, I don't know. But yes, the overwhelming majority of animals raised for food have absolutely horrible lives. And to some extent, that's why I don't focus on the killing, because I do want to focus on the amount of suffering that they undergo, because I think that that would be enough to make such a huge difference. You know, if I could contribute to the end of factory farming, even if there were other animals still suffering, I feel I would have really had a huge impact and uh, a very important one. And so that's in a way what my primary target is to get people to see just how bad factory farming is and to get them trying to not consume those products. Yes, of course. Uh, and, and I do understand that. It's just uh, an issue that you can't help think about as you're reading the book. What, what do you mean, Humane? The other thing that it seems like the animal academic world is currently very caught up in, and what you do write about, is the question of insect sentience. And like many vegans, I've always carried the spiders outside. You know, I've worried about them, uh, but I've never really thought of it as a big thing. And I just don't know how to deal with it. <laughs> I mean, it's it's horrible. The thought of insect sentience really makes the earth an incredibly more horrifying planet than it was before because we kill them all the time by the gazillions. And, and, and we're talking about so many lives and we're kind of legitimately at war with them. I mean, this is not all just casual, meaningless killing. They do interfere with our lives. And and I guess the real big reason is if we can't even get people to care about cows, how will anyone ever care about insects? And and will it even interfere? If, you know, will people just throw their hands up in the air and say, well, th- all of this is nonsense. Reality is reality. If they're sentient, they're sentient. How should we think about insects so they won't put a halt to everything and we have some kind of sensitivity to this issue? This wasn't an issue the last time you wrote, was it? No, I didn't. But you see, I think we are expanding our concern. I also spent a lot less time writing about fish 
previously because I didn't really think people were ready to start talking about fish feeling pain. But now I do. Uh, when I first wrote, really, it was chickens who were the marginal case. A lot of people said, oh, chickens are so dumb, you know, what does it matter what you do to a chicken? Already 50 years ago, I was strongly pushing back against that. And now it's it's fish. And I, did, I talk a little bit about insects. That's because, you know, as well as the insects that, as you say, we're kind of at war with because we have to keep uh, food from them and uh, we don't want them biting us in the case of mosquitoes. But we're also now producing billions of insects in uh, farming, which mostly are ground up and, and used as animal feed. But some of them, like crickets, are starting to appear in protein bars, things of that sort. So people ask me about that. You know, they say, you know, do you eat insects? Are you prepared to eat these ground up crickets or uh, whatever else it might be? Do you think that that's going to be a good solution because uh, uh, to climate change? Because they apparently, you know, they don't emit so many greenhouse gases, certainly not compared to cows. So I felt I had to say something about it. And my view is that I don't know whether insects are, are conscious or not. It's difficult to say. They may be, some of them may be, and others not. That's also possible because there's so many different kinds of insects. So I don't really know what to do with it either. And, and I do, of course, focus substantially on those animals who I'm confident are conscious, most of which are vertebrates, although there's also octopus and uh, lobster, for example. So, yeah, I, I think I had to mention it. I don't think I could have just ignored insects, but uh, I agree yeah. it's not it's not what we ought to be focusing on now. Well, and particularly, like I said, we can't even people get get people to recognize pigs or get them to recognize mosquitoes. It's going to be it's going to be hard. I don't want to dwell on this topic, but as long as I do have Peter Sanger here and I can ask him a question, so this question came to mind in talking about this: Is sentience always sentience? Are there is this something we should think of as an on-off question, or is it kind of a scale? And will that enter into our thinking at some point when we talk about insects or even now should it enter into our thinking that obviously the animals that we eat, they're all very sentient. They're probably, you know, they're, they're a high level. But as we get further down the scale, is it, is it possible that they feel something but not as much or is this going to become an issue? I think that is probably the case. Yes, I'm, I, I certainly would not assume that, you know, if insects are conscious beings, I would not assume that they can therefore feel in the way that vertebrate animals can feel, or, you know, those few invertebrates like the octopus who who are clearly intelligent beings and I think pretty clearly sort of plan ahead in some ways, but we're talking about crickets or mealworms or something of that sort. No, I mean, there's far fewer neurons, so I assume that that's relevant. I assume that you need to have a reasonably complex central nervous system to be able to feel pain. So I would think, uh, yeah, there is quite a scale and that would be a justification also for saying we should be focusing on the suffering of those animals who have the larger brains and can feel pain rather than the insects who are really very different. There's a lot of discussion of them and I feel like I had to bring it up. There seems to be a trend in the law, and it started with the EU, I think, to recognize animals as sentient beings, which is totally weird because you don't usually have to pass a law to recognize reality. It's like, oh, we're passing a law that the sky is blue. But a lot of people feel very enthusiastic about this. Do laws like this do some good? Do they help people understand better? They 
do help people to understand, but I also hope that eventually they will give rise to legal decisions which will help animals. Uh, I mean, you're the, you're the lawyer, not me, but um, uh, my understanding is that it would be possible for that, those laws, which, as you say, exist in the European Union and in the United Kingdom and in some other places, to enter into legal decisions about animals and, and what you can do to them. Uh, that may take some time to develop and evolve, but I think it should. And I think, for example, the fact that in the recently passed United Kingdom law, giving animals the status of sentient beings, which the United Kingdom only had to pass because it had left the European Union, but in passing it, it did something that goes beyond what the European Union law does, and that is to include cephalopods and decapod crustaceans as sentient beings. In other words, octopus, squid, lobster, crabs. That surely is a now basis for saying, you know, well, we shouldn't be dropping these animals into boiling water in the case of the lobster. Um, they're sentient beings. So, and, and Parliament has said so. And Parliament said so on the basis of scientific report. So I think that's useful in terms of, again, awakening people to what's happening to these animals. What about other kinds of legal cases that take a very rights-based approach, like the Happy the Elephant case or the Estrelita case in, in Ecuador? Do you think those are a step forward? Yes, I also think that they help the public to recognize what animals are, to have courts making those decisions. And of course, you know, they, well, the Happy Elephant case failed, but we did get two judges from the New York Court of Appeal to say that it should have succeeded. I thought that was an interesting step in progress. And uh, cases in, in South America where actually great apes have been freed from terrible conditions and moved to sanctuaries, obviously a beneficial for those particular animals. And and again, we'll uh, awaken people to the idea that judges take seriously the needs of these animals for uh, a decent life. The judge who wrote the very long, passionate dissent in the Happy the Elephant case is now the chief judge of the Court of Appeal. So if only they had brought that case a few months later. And the judge who wrote the majority is out. So, you know. I didn't know that. In fact, that's that's good news. But but presumably they could bring another case now against, uh, I mean, there are plenty of other animals. Certainly. Yeah. I'm sure they're thinking about it. I obviously, I teach animal law. So I see people who who care deeply about animals who have gone into law as a way forward. Do you think that's a, do you have any advice for, for young lawyers or law students about whether that's a good approach to helping animals? Yeah, you would have a lot more experience uh, on that than me. I'm hopeful that it is a good approach. I'm hopeful that the law can make changes. And particularly in the United States, there's a big tradition of law making positive changes Going back to Brown and Board of Education case, I guess, the desegregating education in the United States. That's something of a U.S. peculiarity in the parliamentary democracies that I'm familiar with. Courts are much more reluctant to make changes which they say should be left to uh, the legislatures. And actually, perhaps the U.S. Supreme Court is going to be more cautious too, because that was their justification for the, the Dodds case on abortion, um, that that should be a case for the legislatures. And interestingly, consistently with that idea, they also said in the in rejecting the case by the pork producers against California's Proposition 12, they also said, basically, it's up to the state legislatures to decide how, whether 
pigs, not only pigs, but also pork chops sold in California should come from pigs who have space to walk around and turn around. So, you know, that doctrine worked positively in, in that particular case. Yeah, it's hard to know which way things are going to go, but there have been some successes legally, and and even though they're small successes, which brings us to the question of what is a big success and what is a small success, and also brings me to the question of effective altruism, which, of course, uh, you are closely identified with, one of the founders, I guess. So I want to talk a little bit about what is effective when it comes to animals. In, in the animal rights movement, there's been some negativity about the type of campaign supported by the effective altruism money. I mean, not all of the money, but most of the money. And the money has changed dramatically. There's so much more money supporting this movement than there was 50 years ago when you wrote that book. People are concerned. People are concerned about some of the things that effective altruism money is supporting. Whether we really understand what is effective in bringing about change and the fear that by concentrating so much funding and efforts in this narrow direction, I'm specifically talking about things like Catriac production, the better chicken commitments, that it might not be the most productive. Do you share any of these concerns that the movement is losing kind of a broad-based strategy and focusing on very specific things, which none of us are really sure which is what's going to change the world? That was a really garbled question. I hope you can make sense of it. Yeah, it makes sense of the question, all right. Um, but I, I think my view here is we don't really know what's effective, but we surely want to do, we want to find out what's effective, and then we want to do what is effective. And I think one of the things about the effective altruism movement is not just that uh, it's led to more money flowing into some aspects of the movement, but also that it does try to monitor what works and what doesn't work uh, as far as that's possible. Uh, and that's surely a good thing. I'm not sure about, you know, the uh, the better chicken campaign or the cage-free eggs, but I do think that uh, they have potential. I think that we have to work in a way uh, one step at a time. I think the idea that all we should say is go vegan and no further message than that is not the only way to go. I think it's a good way to go. But um, you know, I'm a pluralist about approaches. I think it's absolutely great that people should be telling everybody to go vegan. And I hope that there's significant amounts of money going into that. But I also think that given that so far that has only produced a rather small number of people who are vegan and there's a vast majority of the factory farmed animals suffering, as we were saying, I don't think we want to just leave them to suffer. So if we can reduce the suffering of chickens through not breeding chickens who grow so fast that you know it hurts them basically to stand up because their immature leg bones don't support their body weight, then, yeah, I think that that would be a good thing. And similarly, if it's even if it's only very marginally better for hens to be cage-free when they're actually crowded in a barn, I still think it's better and it's affecting you know, hundreds of millions of, of hens. So it's a good thing if we get more cage-free eggs. I'm going to tell a story now. It has to do with this. But it was in the 90s, because that's when I first started getting involved in animal issues. And I went to this meeting of Big Apple vegetarians on the west side of Manhattan, and they were having Henry Spira to speak, the beloved Henry Spira. And it, there were about 10 people in attendance. It was a very small crowd. It was a hot Sunday. And Henry brought along his friend, Peter Sayer. 
Um, I'm sure you don't remember this. It was not a particularly notable <laughs> event. But for me, it was a big deal. I think for the other people there, it was a big deal. I mean, I had just tried animal liberation. My whole life was changing. And here was Peter Singer. And I kind of asked you this exact same question. The meeting didn't last long because there was a woman there who, this is classic animal rights story, who was probably mentally ill and she caused all this disruption and then we all left. But I did manage to ask you the question of, you know, it was kind of the Gary Francione question. What welfare reforms are just going to make people feel better about what's happening to animals and be used deceptively by the industry? And what things will set us back are so small that they will set us back? And I think you answered something along the lines of, as long as things don't set us back, that that's the question that we need to ask, as long as things don't set us back. I'm bringing this back to what we were just talking about. The rubber kind of is hitting the road on welfare reforms, and there are real welfare reforms that are really happening, like the better chicken commitment and the cage-free eggs. Are there things, and I, I agree with you that like if you can move animals from a lower circle of hell to a higher circle of hell, you should do it. You were always very careful to say things like that, I noticed in the book. You make a point of saying this doesn't mean these animals are living well, but it's hard for campaigners, for people running these organizations to do that because they're doing the negotiation, companies want credit, that they're doing a good thing, the language gets garbled, it sounds like better chickens or happy chickens. Is it just a matter of language? You always have to go back and say this isn't enough and we have to remember that. How do you keep it from setting us back? I had forgotten about that meeting, but I guess that was the first time we met, right? Uh, I certainly remember going to various events with, with Henry, and I'm also very pleased that you mentioned Henry Spiro because... A hero. He was a hero. Yeah, I think he was a wonderful person, and he should not be forgotten. And for those who don't know, I wrote a book about Henry, if you want to know more. It's called Ethics into Action, and it recently got sort of reprinted in a, a new edition, at least with a new preface. If you want to know more about one of the great pioneers of the 20th century animal movement, uh, pick it up. But the answer to your question, I, I suppose, is that uh, we have to fight these campaigns. We have to, as you say, support companies that are better than other companies because they're only using eggs from cage-free hens, let's say, or they're only using pig products from producers who don't keep their sows in um, stalls that they can't even turn around. We have to say something positive to them to distinguish them from the others and give them some incentive for making that change. But once we've made that change, I think it's perfectly legitimate to go on and say, look, these animals are still indoors all their lives. They're never getting to go outside. They're living on bare concrete or sometimes metal slats. They don't have any bedding or anything like that. And in their natural environment, you know, if we're talking about pigs, say they would be living in a forest and they would be doing all of these things and uh, living in small social groups and spending their day exploring things and, and looking for food and they're totally bored inside. Uh, you know, we, we should say all of these things. We're, we're not on any commitment to hold back from those things. So I think it's a matter of bringing the public along with us and bringing the companies along with us one step at a time. And the other thing to remember about these changes is the factory farmers are opposing them for a reason. The pork producers went through all of these different levels of appeal against Prop, Prop 12 for a reason, you know, and that reason was that they think that they uh, can produce the products more cheaply without these welfare reforms, which no doubt is true, and that therefore they can lose some market share if they get more expensive. It's a good thing for us if they do get more expensive, partly because people may buy fewer of these products, but also because 
the alternative products that are coming online at the moment are more expensive than the animal products. I hope that they will come down in price, but if the animal products go up in price, it'll be easier for them to compete and easier for people to shift to them. Yeah, absolutely. Which brings us back to the very first thing I I asked you about, that we may be at an inflection point. There's a lot of things going on that were definitely not going on 50 years ago. That could mean that we are on the cusp of, of real change and people will wake up from this fever dream where they think it's okay to eat the flesh of dead animals. You're a philosopher, not a psychologist, but they don't seem to be totally unrelated uh, endeavors. And you've been thinking for a long time about human behavior regarding animals. And and in the book, you discuss a lot of the reasons for why otherwise good people, otherwise good people who actually like animals and care about animals and would never do any of these things to an animal, why they continue to participate in this. It's kind of the big question. What are the factors that go into this failure of people to think properly about animals? Well, I, it's hard to say. I mean, I guess that there's more than one factor going into it. One, I think, is just sort of conformity with other people uh, around you, that uh, the majority of people are still eating animals and even still eating factory-farmed animals. And to say, I'm not going to do that anymore, is going to mean that you're going to have to explain to all of these people who may be your friends and your family that you're not going to do this. You're going to have to go, you know, first where you work and say you want to eat something different from what they do. You know, people are very conformist in, and for a lot of people, that's sort of an uncomfortable thought that they would do that, perhaps that they would implicitly be criticizing what other people are doing, which of course is true. We are criticizing what other people are doing. They think that would make me sort of self-righteous or something. People wouldn't like me. So I think that's that's one element of it. I don't know. There may be a sense of powerlessness about your individual decision. I certainly have people saying to me, well, what difference does it make? You know, the supermarket orders so many thousands of chickens. If I don't buy my chicken, they're not going to reduce their bulk order. That's another kind of consideration. And I think that view is supported by the fact that when we do have these referendums like in California for Proposition 12 and in Massachusetts, you know, well, the California one passed by, I think, 63% and the Massachusetts one by 78%. So people will vote for these things. Um, and there, they're happy to vote because then if it passes, everyone will have to go along with that and they won't stand out from the crowd. But it's sort of harder for them to make the individual decision. And as they're not convinced that making the individual decision will really make all that much difference, they just don't do it. I think it's exactly right. I think that all of the things that you said are exactly right. And people in the animal movement, for whatever reason, and they're not better people. Well, sometimes they are, but they're not always better people. But for some reason, they don't mind as much being a little bit different. And it's hard to appreciate how much people frequently do hate being a little bit different. I mean, and you go into climate a lot in in the book and other environmental reasons for veganism or, or for stopping eating animals. And and they're becoming more and more obvious. We, we kind of see the environmentalists struggling with this. They used to just ignore the issue for the most part. And now they're, they're, there's all these debates going on about what's more important. It, does individual action really matter when we really need systems change? This problem is so big, we need systems change. So why is going vegan as an individual or is it important when what we really do need, <laughs> obviously, is systems change? Yes, but I think, the idea that you're arguing for, you know, 
a change to the system while continuing to, to consume the products of that system does weaken the plausibility of your argument. I think saying, and I don't eat these products, is a way of showing your sincerity and the importance of the issue to you. And I think it's it's much more persuasive to be arguing from a position of saying, we just don't need these products, and I know we don't need them because I've been not eating them for the past X years, uh, and I'm fine, uh, and I enjoy what I eat, and I'm feeling fit and healthy. Uh, so I think it is important to sort of join the movement and feel that you're building the movement and contributing to it by not consuming those products. It's hard to imagine any other issue where people would make those kind of claims. Like, do they drive huge gas guzzlers around and say, well, it doesn't really matter what I drive because uh, we need systems change in what people drive? Of course not. People generally try to live out their principles. Uh, speaking of climate, how pessimistic are you? That we will succeed in averting catastrophic climate change? Is, yeah. that, is that, that the question you're asking? Yeah. I don't really know. I haven't given up hope that we can. I mean, obviously, climate change is already happening and it's already very bad. And there's a lag in the effect of what we're doing. We know that. So um, things are going to get worse. No question about that. But will it get completely out of control so that large parts of the planet become uninhabitable? Will we have to have uh, not just millions or even tens of millions of, of climate refugees, but hundreds of millions or, or a billion or more? That's really hard to say, and I guess we, I think I hope that we can still avert those worst consequences from occurring. But I don't have great confidence. I must admit, I think it's a very serious concern. Yeah, yeah, I'm in a pretty dark place about it myself, which makes it particularly frustrating when you see the animal use industries fighting back about everything, just everything, and the idea that we can still raise cattle and, and, and all of it. Do you think this message is breaking through at all, the, the message about the, the harms of not just the other industries on, on the climate, but the animal use industries, which I think it's pretty acknowledged that at least 15% of greenhouse gases are due to, directly due to animal use industry? Yes, I think that's right. And also the destruction of forests like the Amazon, uh, either to graze cattle or to grow soy, which is then largely fed to cattle. I can't believe you also get the question of, why are you eating soy? Don't you know it's oh, destroying yes. the Amazon? Like even Peter Singer gets that question. I get that question. Yeah, right. And so as you know, I think 77% is the figure of the proportion of the world's soy crop that is fed to animals and, and essentially wasted as far as its nutritional value is concerned. And yeah, the, the amount that goes to tofu or tempeh or soy, soy milk is, is really trivial compared to that. So yeah, uh, I think the message is getting across. And, and one sign of that is you, you mentioned the environmental groups before. So if you go back a few decades and you went to an event organized by environmental groups, the food that they provided, if they're providing food, was just the same as the food provided by any, any you know, corporations that had nothing to do with the environment. They, they were providing meat. They were even providing beef. That has changed now. So you go to these events, my experience at least, they provide a lot of plant-based food. Some of them might be entirely plant-based. Some of it, it may unfortunately have uh, fish or perhaps chicken, which from a greenhouse point of view are less bad than, than beef and lamb. But of course, from an animal welfare point of view, I think are probably worse. So I think that shows that at least the environmental movement is getting this. It's very difficult to bring about the change politically because often rural areas, which are maybe important for political parties not to lose votes in those rural areas, 
are resistant to this change. Obviously, they they're either complete climate skeptics, a few of them, though that's dwindling, or they just was you know will produce some strange theory about how the grass is all absorbing the greenhouse gases that the cows produce. Yeah, we see the same thing happening with that, that has always happened with animals, just making up ridiculous arguments. All right, getting back to animals and the animal protection movement, who's doing work right now that you like, that you believe can actually lead to real change? Are there, is there anybody in the movement right now you'd like to, to shout out? Look, I think there are a lot of good people. I don't want to pick on, on any particularly, but I, I think the, you know, many of the, the big animal movements uh, are really doing a good job. And I think if you want to know which of those that are working well, I look at uh, animal charity evaluators. I think uh, they have a good sense of which at least some of the groups that are doing well. There's an organization called Farmed Animal Funders, which is aimed more at people who are reasonably significant funders, but I think they have a good idea of how to help farmed animals. I certainly appreciate the work that people for the ethical treatment of animals are doing. I think they've been pioneering for a long time in terms of changing our awareness of animals and uh, being prepared to stand up for animals in all sorts of respects. The Humane League is another organization that I think has a good focus on farmed animals and is doing a lot of good work. Mercy for Animals also got some great campaigns. So I I think there's a number of really good organizations. Going back to whether effective altruism is always making the the you know the right call for where money should go, I, I just interviewed Luis Hoyas recently. Of course, made the Cove and and the Game Changers, um, other movies that have really reached a lot of people. Do you think that's a good use of money, or are you more leaning towards the campaign organizations? So I would generally lean towards the campaign organizations because there are a lot of people making documentaries about animals. And yeah, you can name a couple that have made a big impact. And by the way, going back to what we were saying about awakening people to the greenhouse gas impact, uh, I should mention the guys who made Cowspiracy. And I've forgotten their names because I... I have two. <laughs> names get harder to recall as you get older, I think. Thank you for saying that. Thank you for saying that. Even Peter Singer has problems recalling. Yeah. So, um, but I think they they did a good, uh, a, a good job in in doing that. Yeah. So certainly, you know, some films do make an impact, but um, I'm guessing that for every film that makes an impact, there's twenty, thirty uh, more that don't really make an impact. So I I tend to support the campaigning organisations more than the than the arts and uh, film organisations. Let's talk a little bit about the tragic history of Western thought vis-a-vis animals, because you spent a lot of time on that. It's very depressing. Repeated insistence in the past, more or less, that animals just don't matter whatsoever at all. And not saying that animals are less important than humans, but that they just, you know, the whole Descartes kind of thinking, but so many different thinkers in the past. And and that really changed. I mean, it's not what people say now. Or or I guess I'm wondering, is there anyone out right now who is publicly saying that? Has the entire thought process shifted to saying something that animals do matter, but maybe we shouldn't cause them unnecessary suffering. That seems to be the the common line, the, the Catholic Church, philosophers, other religions. It seems like the thought process developed in a terrible, terrible way, and it's shifted, but behavior hasn't really shifted. Yes, I think um, certainly in the Western tradition, it's very hard to find someone now who takes uh, either the, the line of Descartes that animals can't suffer. They're just like very complicated alarm clocks that make noises. Or to take find somebody like uh, Kant who said, uh, we don't have duties to animals because they're not 
autonomous, self-aware beings. Um, and it's interesting that even America's leading Kantian, Christine Korsgaard, strongly dissents from that view um, and has written to say that just can't, can't just made a mistake there. He seemed to be confusing a moral agent, that is somebody who is capable of making moral decisions, from what philosophers call a moral patient, by which we mean somebody who is the subject of moral obligations, that so we have obligations to them. I think there has been a big shift in, in Western thinking, and that's a very good thing. And that's true in the Roman Catholic Church as well. Uh, Francis, in a recent encyclical, uh, indicated that he was dissociating the church from the idea that uh, earlier thinkers, including Thomas Aquinas, who was hugely influential for many centuries in the Catholic Church, um, had taken that the dominion verse in Genesis, the idea that God gave us dominion over the animals, can be interpreted as saying that God doesn't care what we do to animals. You know, it's just left it up to us. And therefore, there's nothing we can do that is a sin towards an animal. Yeah, I think, I think there has been a shift, and that's a good thing. It's certainly also, I think, true to some extent in other countries. Obviously, Buddhists have long had uh, the idea that compassion for all sentient beings is an important principle. Um, but I think more Buddhists are actually engaged in concerns about animals now in non-Western countries. Uh, I've had a long dialogue with a, a female Buddhist monastic called Shi Chao Wei in Taiwan, who's been very active in the animal movement. So I think those are all good things, good signs that are happening. Are they translated into change? Um, I think in the long run, they make change easier. They, I, I do think that there's something that is not just on the level of intellectual ideas, but does make a difference. Well, one would hope so, unless all of these uh, endeavors are just total nonsense, religion and philosophy and, and all the rest of it. So as far as philosophy is concerned, actually, let me just say here we have some really hard evidence now, and because I was involved in a study carried out with uh, Eric Schwitzgabel, a uh, philosopher at UC Riverside, and Brad Coglet, who's now, I think, in Kansas. And it was really basically Eric's idea. He, there's a large uh, undergraduate introductory philosophy class with about a thousand students at Riverside. And Riverside students buy their meals on campus using their ID card. So this gave Eric the idea that if we could randomly divide the large introductory class into students who had a session on the ethics of eating meat and other students who had a session on, let's say, giving to help the global poor, but that's just the control group because we can't assess whether that makes an impact, then we could look at what they're purchasing anonymously, but we could look at the, the ID numbers, and see whether the class made a difference. And Eric was inclined to believe that it won't because he had done other research relating to philosophy that was suggesting that philosophers didn't behave any better, better than other people. But I, from anecdotal experience with my classes, um, believe that it would because every time I teach these topics, you know, some students come up to me and say, uh, yeah, you're right, I'm, I'm going to stop eating animals. So we ran this uh, big controlled study and, and yes, the, the class, the, the group that had been to the class on meat ethics ordered fewer meat meals. I, I'm not saying they all became vegan, nothing like that, not as dramatic, but a statistically significant drop in the amount of meat that they organized. And this got published in one of the best uh, psychology journals, Cognition. We, we backed it up with a kind of a replication study to check that it wasn't a fluke. We got a similar result. I think we can say that philosophy does 
make a difference. We can't say that it makes as big a difference as we would like, but it's not it's not completely inefficacious in changing behavior. And that's pretty encouraging, isn't it? <laughs> it well, I, th- I think you could probably say it a little more strongly than that. But uh, yeah, no, it is. Going back to religion, I mean, a lot of people take their moral rules for life from religion. That's pretty common. As you point out, religions have shifted, but they haven't really implemented these teachings. And, you know, like the the official position of the Catholic Church may may be much better, but it's not like the sermon every Sunday is going to be about that instead of abortion. At the same time, it feels like something very big has shifted. The fact that people's ideas towards animals is completely divorced from their from their their beliefs about animals. The fact that people's beliefs about animals are completely divorced from their behavior about animals. Well, this could all change on a dime, couldn't it? There really could be monumental change, given that most people are kind of just in denial about what they really think. Yeah. And what their what their moral teachers teach them. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there could be change. And I think that change could be assisted by developments in producing alternatives to meat from animals. And you know that could be plant-based or it could be uh, cellular production of meat. I don't know if you saw the recent announcement that uh, in Israel, the uh, food authorities have uh, accepted a dairy product that doesn't come from cows, that is produced by uh, fermentation using specific yeasts to produce the dairy proteins. And the board has said it's nutritionally identical to dairy products from cows. So, you know, this could be a whole new area. And uh, if that spreads, if it can be done in a way that's economically competitive, and I can't see why it shouldn't, if you can then produce uh, other dairy products, yogurt and cheeses and so on, from that, then uh, I think people could really start switching because, you know, what's what's the difference? And that'll make it easier. And given that there is this... uh, sort of cognitive dissonance, to use the psychologist expression for it, between those beliefs that you mentioned and, and what people are eating, they might just find it, why not resolve the, the, the dissonance? Why not have, you know, get rid of this residual, maybe it's in the background, but still there's a bit of a guilty feeling that I shouldn't be eating that. Why not get rid of it by eating the alternative product? Yeah. And as you pointed out before, people don't like to be different. So the more people who change, the more people who change. Exactly. You get a critical mass and you'll get it, find it easier to to come for the rest. So do you have any inside info about cultured meat? Is it still two years away? At least for the past 10 years, it's always been two years yeah, away. That's right. Well, I, I, I mean, it's not two years away anymore, strictly speaking, because you can buy it. At a, there's a restaurant in Singapore that is selling cultured chicken. So it's here, but the problem is it's, it's selling there. a re- restaurant because it's, well, also it's there in Singapore and we're not in Singapore, but also because um, it's, it's still more expensive. And that's why, you know, a restaurant can absorb the price difference. But to sell it in supermarkets on a large scale, it will have to come down in price. I don't know. I have no inside information on that. I, I hope it will happen soon, but I agree. We've been expecting it for quite a few years and we don't have it yet. Tell us about the speaking tour. You are about to talk to a lot of people about about these issues. That's right. I'm starting in, in Washington on Friday, so I believe that's going to be too late for this program when it's released. But I will then be in Los Angeles on the 29th of May and in San Francisco on the 30th, and in New York City on June the 1st. So for more details, please go to 
Think Inc. That's T H I N K I N C dot live L I V E slash singer, and you'll get details of those events. Everyone uh, who gets a ticket to those events gets a free copy of Animal Liberation Now, and we've decided to slash the price of the tickets for anybody who puts in the discount code SINGER in caps, S-I-N-G-E-R caps, and the number 5050 will get a 50% discount on the ticket price. Excellent. And I'm sure a lot of people will want to see that. And definitely a lot of people will want to read the book because like, even if you read it and, you know, most of us did uh, right at the beginning of when we started, but if you haven't read it in a long time, read it again, because it's really, really good. Thank you so much for, for writing it. And thank you so much for joining us today, Peter. Thanks very much, Marion. It's been great speaking to you again. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our henhouse will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxieties are rising. Oh boy, they're really rising this week. A number of specific topics, particularly the checkoff program is being written about all over the the ag industry web Webiverse. You're probably familiar with the Chekhov program, but just in case, uh, I'll just... It's frequently said it's funded by the government. It's actually funded by the industry, but it's administered by the government. I don't know whether government funds are spent in administering it, probably, but the actual the actual major funding comes from the industry. It's this very intimate relationship between the industry and the USDA. Uh, where the USDA administers this program that that advertises and promotes and and doesn't lobby for. Uh, they're not allowed to do that, but they're allowed to do pretty much everything else in favor of particular commodities. And it's not just uh, animal ag, though those are the ones you hear of all the time. And also other other some vegetable commodities. I don't know how they decide which one get checkoff program and which don't, but. Yeah, I think that the promotion of the checkoff programs might be like part of the strategy that the industry is responding to, to Prop 12 being upheld and to, you know, some pressures that being put on them because they're really, and there's pressure on the the checkoff program as well, because it's not all producers of animal flesh who are in favor of it. And right now there's some, there's a bill pending in, in actually in Congress that, uh, that is fighting against it. And there, there is actually people on both sides, both people on the animal uh, activist side and, and people on the industry side, but who are against the checkoff program because they feel it's a, an unwarranted tax on them that are fighting to get this bill passed. So that's one of our articles this week specifically about that, though I'm seeing the checkoff program mentioned everywhere. This is an article from drovers.com, Wilkinson. That's the name of the guy, Todd Wilkinson. He's got his, you know, cowboy hat cosplay costume on. 
for the pictures. They love to wear those cowboy hats. Fight the animal rights groups infiltrating our industry. Wouldn't it be nice if we actually were infiltrating their industry? Over the past few weeks, Todd has seen news, quote, news articles and social media posts. Oh, my God. Social media posts lying about our industry, attacking our association. He's from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. I think he's the president. Uh, and endangering the programs, those are the checkoff programs, that generations of farmers and ranchers worked hard to establish. And I am fed up. You know, Todd, I'm fed up too. I know how you feel. All right. So th this is the bill that he's all upset about. It's called Opportunities for Fairness in Farming or Off Act. But let's call it what it really is, the Obliterating Family Farms Act. Yeah, they love to pretend, you know, they have family, so they're, they're family farms, you know? Like, uh, I don't even, I'm not even familiar with all of the groups that, that are pushing this bill, but one of them is Mercy for Animals. And the other group on the other side of the fence is RCAF. RCAF has even joined this dubious group, hoping again to use an alliance with animal rights activists to tear down the checkoff. RCAF is the cattle ranchers who don't like being forced to pay for the for the um, checkoff program. Proponents of the off act say it's about reform, oversight, and saving family farms and ranches. But make no mistake, that's completely false. They're just, I guess they're just lying. I think the fight basically is, I, I don't know a lot about the fight within the industry, but I think it is between smaller producers and, and you know, the really big, the big guys. But Todd wants all cattle producers to know about this latest attempt at extremists trying to hijack our industry and livelihoods. Don't ally yourself with groups that say they have your future in mind, but back politicians and activists who think our way of life is morally wrong. That would be me. I think your way of life is morally wrong. They're leaning hard on this. So obviously this checkoff program they think it really, really benefits them, at least the big guys do. Nice to see some dissension going on in the ranks. All right, here's another one. This is from Roy Graber, and this is from Watt Poultry. Better chicken commitment or worst chicken commitment? And they're talking about the better chicken commitment, which, you know, I'm not particularly crazy about. It's a number of animal um, organizations are trying to get a tiny little foothold into the the enormous, enormous suffering that so-called broiler chickens suffer as they're being raised for food. And so obviously any commitment they're going to be get, it's mostly from retailers, fast food companies, et cetera, are going to be small. I mean, but they're, you know, as I say every week, different circles of hell. It's a higher circle of hell if you can get people to line up with this better better chicken commitment. This guy is talking about some speech given by one Jack Hubbard, who is the partner and owner of public affairs firm Berman. Now, I think that firm was founded by Rick Berman, who's, you know, a fanatic proponent of the animal ag industry. And I think the founder of the Center for Consumer Freedom and all of that. But I'm not sure he still owns his firm. So it's now owned by Jack Hubbard, who used to be the COO of American Humane. So if you have any question that American Humane is on the dark side... Wow. Doesn't get much worse than this. Okay, so according to the speech given by Mr. Hubbard, the better chicken commitment, quote, actually should be called the worst chicken commitment. Do you love the, the clever phraseology? <laughs> this is such brilliant speech writing. Because it drives up emissions and undermines every other environmental, social, and governance goal that all of these public companies are adopting. 
I don't really know whether there's any truth in this, but I wouldn't be surprised if in order to be more frequently, in order to be more humane to animals, give them, and in this particular instance, it would have a lot to do with using breeds that don't grow quite so fast and so don't cause so much crippling pain to the animals. And if they grow slower, that means that you have to put more resources into raising them. And so that would use more resources. So, you know, there isn't any win-win in animal agriculture. Uh, so that they like to point that out. But animal rights groups, quote, don't have the same definition of sustainability as yours. Yeah, I bet, <laughs> I bet that's really true. <laughs> he advises against even having conversations with these activist groups. He would like, you know, especially the retailers to just not even get into this. So just trust him. He knows what he's doing. If everybody goes into the sustainability thing saying, kumbaya, we're all on the same page, I'm telling you, you're not. You know, he's probably right. You probably aren't. Um, he also said that some companies think if they just serve a plant-based hamburger on their menu, they'll be fine. Well, no. Yeah, I no. <laughs> he's right. Uh, that's a false assumption. Once they convince you on one matter, such as plant-based burgers, then they will start to pressure you to serve only chicken raised in accordance with the better chicken commitment or serve only pork from farms that do not use gestation souls. Well, I hope they push for a little bit more than that. You know, I think that they that, that that's true, but let's hope let's hope it goes a little further. When you look at the people attacking pork, this is from Mr. Hubbard, and you look at the people attacking chicken, and you look at the people attacking pets, it's all the same. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. I guess that's a reference to like how, you know, they like to pretend that we think people shouldn't have pets. All right. The minute you raise your hand and invite any of these people to the table, you are making yourself a target for the next campaign. Well, let's hope that Jack is right, because that is exactly my hope for these, you know, very small improvements in the way animals are treated. Small, but huge, because they're treated so badly that even getting them up a little bit less abused is a, is a huge leap. But I'm always hoping, you know, that my goal that, that it doesn't stop there, that nobody's pretending that it's going to stop there. He says it is a move the goalpost strategy. I certainly have a move the goalpost strategy. And the end game does not involve a piece of chicken, a piece of bacon or a hamburger on a plate. Yeah. Yeah. Go, Jack. You've, you've got it all figured out. Thrilled. Absolutely thrilled. All right. Let's see. What's, what, what's next on the agenda? Perspective. Don't blame cattle for climate change. Mm, no. This is by one Jack DeWitt from Ag Daily. Cows and methane. Sources vary, but some say ruminants, of which cows are just one example, are responsible for 16% of worldwide methane emissions. Yeah, that's the figure I've heard. You know, I think it's probably higher, but if it's 16%, it's enough of a disaster that we have to pay attention to it. So whatever. He goes to, into what a ruminant is. This is a long article, so I will, I will have to leave out a lot of it. Here is something you have probably never heard when cows are accused of being a major cause of global warming. The methane released from the rumen will decay back to carbon dioxide after 10 to 12 years of roaming around in the atmosphere. Actually, that is something I have heard. <laughs> like anybody who knows anybody, anything about this knows that methane breaks down much, much faster than carbon dioxide. However, the point is we don't have 10 to 12 years. We can't have it roaming around in the atmosphere 10 to 12 years, warming the atmosphere because we don't have that much time. 
of course, its intensity is much greater than carbon dioxide. It just does dissipate faster. Like, of course I know that. This cycle has been going on for thousands of years. Yes, we all know that too. There have always been cows and, you know, other animals too, buffalo, sheep, goats. They all, this has always been an issue. It's just never been an issue that was going to take down the planet. Something you have no doubt heard is that cattle who live their entire lives on pastures emit less methane. That's not true. Actually, I have not heard that because that's not true. We all know that's not true. We all know that grass-fed is, is much worse when it comes to methane than feedlot-fed. Of course, they're really trying to push that now because they're trying to use this as an excuse to not use grass-fed. They've figured this all out. They're not so stupid. Well, they're pretty stupid, but... The time from birth to slaughter alone means less methane is produced from grain-fed beef. Okay, we get to kill them sooner. It's kind of the same story with the chickens. Because we get to kill them sooner, because they grow faster, it's much better for the world. So isn't that great? It's all, it's kind of win-win. Well, except for the cows, it's lose-lose. Plus the fact that rations are high in grains result in less methane burps. I particularly like this line. Critics say grass is the natural food for cattle, not grain. Again, not entirely true. Grain is like candy to cattle. Doesn't that, doesn't that mean that it's not the natural food for cattle? And he goes on to say, if allowed to, they'll eat way too much of it and make themselves very sick. So that would prove that it's not the natural food for cattle, unless you think candy is the natural food for humans. And also, it's not just that this will all go away in 12 years after the planet is gone, but much is being done to mitigate methane emissions from cows. Then they talk about the, the feed additives, which, you know, we keep hearing about, but like we never really hear anything serious about it. Research has shown that feedlot methane reductions of 50% can be achieved by adding nitrates to the ration, but dosage between safety and toxicity is narrow. So you can reduce the methane reductions by, by apparently killing the cows or at least risking killing the cows. He's not saying that this is being done. He's just saying it could be done. And also, we should expect methane emissions from manure lagoons at large dairies to continually drop as more owners cover their lagoons and utilize the methane produced. This is one of the most nefarious of the arguments, I think. They're saying, not that they're doing it, but they're saying, well, we can use that methane because methane is a fuel. Well, it's not exactly a fossil fuel because it's not like in the ground and it's not from fossils, but it basically is a fossil fuel, what we think of as a fossil fuel. Their point is, is that well, you can use methane and burn it and use it as a fuel. What you're doing there is creating more fossil fuels. And yes, rather than letting it out into the atmosphere, it's better to use it because then you don't emit as much greenhouse gas into the atmosphere. It's still a fossil fuel. You're, it's, you're actually creating more fossil fuels. Oh, God, I hate these people. That's what they're talking about. I hope their anxieties are rising. I'm going to add one more article because it's also on the checkoff. And I just want you to, I want to emphasize how, how much I think this is important to them. This is just an article from the Meat Business column by Gregory Bloom on meetingplace.com. Our fight for survival. Don't you already love the title? You're likely noticing, he says, the creeping intolerance for agriculture in general, but especially for the meat industry. Now hold the phone here. I have not noticed any intolerance for agriculture in general. Like, I really haven't. All right, maybe some criticism here and there, but most of us on the planet recognize that agriculture is kind of a thing we need. Meat industry, no. Agriculture, yes. Here are just a few examples. Prop 12, the SCOTUS ruling, um, the mayor of New York limiting the amount of meat served in schools, USDA Dietary Guidelines Committee continuing to push sugar and carbs over meat. 
Really? He's saying he's also saying in Denmark they're trying to limit certain types of food production because of um, climate change. Generational farmers are not only being forced out of business, and there's record numbers of reports of suicides. I googled that. I couldn't find any th- such thing in Denmark, but you know that I didn't spend a lot of time on it. I think that fact needs to be checked. And there are too many further examples to list in a simple blog. Well, you know, no, there aren't. <laughs> But whatever. Like, are you, if you had them, you would list them. All right. So then his point is, like any battle, our fight will require money. And so everybody should be increasing, working to increase funding and add resources to the checkoff programs to engage in the fight. And he realizes that checkoff funds can't be used for lobbying legislatures, but they can be used for buying advertising, educating our nation's children in schools, countering the anti meet agenda activist propaganda. This is, you know, the government administered program and dozens of other effective outreach campaigns. So yeah, they're putting they're putting all of their slimy old toxic eggs in this basket. Well maybe not all of them, but all of a sudden they're all pushing it. Hopefully that means that they're getting more and more scared, as they should be. And that's it for this week's rising anxieties. Well, that's it for our show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and you're able, we would be thrilled to have you join the flock by going to ourhenhouse.org slash donate and signing up for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you are welcome to make any size donation that feels comfortable to you. You can also support us by leaving a glowing review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Like us on Facebook, where you can also leave a fabulous review, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Hen House. Join our online community at ourhenhouse.mn.co and spread the word about the podcast to friends and family. The Mighty Networks platform, which again is at ourhenhouse.mn.co, is available to everyone, regardless of whether or not you're a Flock member, though we do have a lot of robust information behind the paywall of the Flock section. So do consider that when you're considering joining the flock. And if you already support us, thank you so much. Remember, if you become a flock member, you also get bonus content each week, an opportunity to have a one-on-one session with me, Jasmine. And you also get access to that aforementioned fabulous flock bonus area of Mighty Networks. If you donate $250 or more, we'll also send you a pretty fantastic our Hen House Brass Pin. So thank you so much to those of you who support us. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing the podcast, to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our logo and other graphics. I'm Jasmine Singer, and I'll talk to you next week. 